Today, from Istanbul, we experience some of the great spiritual tensions and possibilities of our world, the art of religious otherness and the dialogue of life. We meet a bishop of Eastern Orthodox Christianity, which still has its base in this Muslim nation. First, we speak with a Roman Catholic Dominican monk who lives in Istanbul. The Dominicans began as an order of preachers and fighters of heresy. As part of this tradition, Alberto Ambrosio is living a Christianity inspired by his study of Islam. He calls this a wonderful paradox, a life-giving contradiction. I love this uh, contradiction. I'm closer to the idea of human communion, human uh, meeting. I mean, I know that I'm a Catholic and I'm still very close to this uh, philosophy and theology, but at the same time, I can be open mind to see what God creates. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being from APM, American Public Media. Istanbul, of course, is the former Constantinople, named after the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. The story of one of this city's great monuments, the Hagia Sophia, offers a kind of microcosm of the story of Christianity here. This architecturally astonishing structure is the second largest church building in the world and one of the most ancient. It was first the Byzantine seat of Christianity and later a mosque of the Ottoman Empire. Today it's a museum of the Turkish Republic. It was at the suggestion of several Muslims that I visited Alberto Fabio Ambrosio at his monastery. He's lived in this city since he was in his 20s. He's an emerging teacher about Islam within Roman Catholicism, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the whirling dervishes, who the poet Rumi inspired in this land in the 13th century. I want to actually start out by asking you to tell us where we are. Tell, tell us about this building and yeah, this location. We are in a historical part of Istanbul. We are really in the Genovese part of the city. Uh, the Dominicans here spent uh, something like four centuries in Istanbul, in this place. Uh, but the Dominicans brothers were here even before in another church that was changed into a mosque in fourteen. Uh, 14- 75. Right. So they left there. Yeah. And they came here. We drove by um, a tower, you said the Italian tower that was 600 years old. Yeah, because of the Genovese. The Genovese uh, constructed this uh, Galata Tower. Very beautiful. Yeah, wonderful. It's a wonderful place. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, I love to live here. I love to travel also. But when I come back here, I'm very happy because we feel the history. We feel, uh, we feel this part of history, Byzantine history. We feel also in our own place, we feel also the Ottoman history. Uh, in fact, uh, this place was made in, in the Ottoman time. Mm-hmm. And uh, this building uh, was made in, in the Republic time. So we can live the history every day, every moment of our daily life. I, I'm just saying, as you, as you tell me this story, it, when we just as we came into this neighborhood, um, it has an Italian feel. I mean, yeah. even the cafes. The, yeah, of course. Somehow there's that, the tower and uh, the little corner. It's very kind of intimate and busy. Yeah. Uh-huh. In a way, I feel at home. Mm-hmm. I'd like to hear just a little bit about you. Um, you grew up in Italy? 
in uh, in Italy. I grew and, up yes. in Italy. And tell me about how you, it was that you came to become a Dominican friar. I I was a, a normal Italian Catholic. I mean, I was um, I used to go to the mass with my mom every Sunday morning, and more or less that's all. I mean, I tried to pray morning and evening uh, prayers. Uh, but at 18 years old, I felt the love of God. I mean, I can say more and more and more, but the point is that I felt uh, something that for me is the love of God. And the only answer I could uh, uh, give to this feeling is was to offer my life to this love of God uh, that I felt as uh, really powerfully. That's why at nine, 18 years old, uh, behind this feeling, I decided to give my life as uh, as Jesuit or Dominican. And the day after, I went to a bookshop, and every 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 everything in my life starts with a book. And I went <laughs> to this uh, bookshop, and I, I could read the, the uh, medieval texts of the biography of Saint Dominic. And I said, "Okay, let's go with the Dominicans." <laughs> so and. 20 years after, I'm still Dominican uh, brother, and so I think that this feeling that is not just a feeling, of course, uh, this vocation, I, I call it a vocation, uh, is uh, still uh, living in me. Mm -hmm. With, of course, different periods as in life. Right. Okay, so, so then, yes, yeah, so somewhere in there, you became interested in Sufism, in yeah, Islam, in the mystical tradition of Islam, right. and in the whirling dervishes in particular. So how did that capture your attention as a Dominican? Uh, as a Dominican, my, uh, with my vocation, I started also to read uh, Christian and, of course, uh, Catholic mystics. I read a lot during my formation as a Dominican. I read, and I'm still reading, um, Christian mystics as Teresa of Avila, um, a little bit less uh, John, John of the, the Cross, Cross mm -hmm. and Julian of Norwich, and so on. And then when we traveled uh, in Jerusalem, we did a, a, a kind of pilgrimage in Jerusalem, and it was in '97, and I was more or less finishing my formation as Dominican, and I was trying to uh, imagine my future as Dominican. At the time, I didn't want to go on even uh, in studying, and it was not confused, but I was wondering how it will be my life after. And then in Jerusalem, I discovered Islam. I discovered the Arabic language. Mm -hmm. And I discovered more the uh, Muslim believers than the Christian or the Jewish. And I was very surprised by the simplicity of uh, Muslim believers praying outside the mosques and inside. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, in a way I was in love with these people, and I was not interested at all in the Christian sites. I mean, I was not, I mean, when I think even now uh, this uh, pilgrimage, I think at uh, uh, the believers, uh, the Muslim believers there. And then I came back to Italy and uh, I asked to my superior to go to Turkey. And he said, yes, why not? And uh, here I am. I mean, uh, after 15 years, I, I'm still here. 
And so did you did your real study of the of Sufis and whatever yeah, just happened here then? Even at the beginning of my uh, Turkish studies, I took always the options to study uh, Sufi orders, uh, history, or Sufi, Sufi, Sufis at the beginning because of my interest in uh, Christian mysticism. Right, also. right. So, and of course, then you were at the center of Islamic of course, mysticism. Yeah, of, of course. And I'm shocked because sometimes Christian or Muslims say to me, Uh, but you are more a dervish or a Sufi than some <laughs> something else. In a way, I'm very happy. In another way, I'm I wonder I'm wondering, am I a good priest or a good mm. uh, Dominican? Mm. You also, though, in coming here, brought yourself to a crucible of Christianity. Yeah, I mean, where Saint Paul was from. This, yeah, these resonant names from the yeah. Bible, Ephesus, and. Did, did you know that, or did you discover that? Uh, I discovered that, maybe. Uh, at the time, it was more for uh, studying Islam. Yeah. And uh, then, even now, I mean, I know that it is the, the, the country of St. Paul uh, and the, the very first church history, but I'm more interested in living things, in mm -hmm. living people, in living... Uh, I mean, I'm more interested in, in doing... Eventually, I'm more uh, closer to the living Christian community right. here than a history that, in a way, is finished. I mean, I know that there are some pilgrimage here to the St. Paul's uh, places, but in a way, it's just stones for me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm more interested in living mm -hmm. beliefs uh, here as a Christian or as a Muslim. So, so let's talk about what that's like for you, this life you have of um, you know, being immersed in the meditative tradition of Christianity and really living also this meditative tradition of Islam. I mean, maybe one place to start is uh, when you said at 18 you experienced the love, the love of God, and this then took over your life. What, what do you get from both of these traditions about that thing that we call love? I was, uh, till last summer, well, till last October, I was um, really thinking about the love of God in, uh, in Islam and in Sufism. Even the Pope uh, talked a little bit in this really famous uh, uh, talk in, in German uh, that Islam is in a way violence. That means for me, in, a, in another point of view, something is violence means that it's not love. So I uh, kept in my mind this idea and I brought... I had to, to give a, a, a course in Rome about the love of God in Christian mysticism and in Sufism, and no students, so uh, the, the, the course was, um, was up. I mean, no student, no No, no one enrolled? And, but I brought an article. Mm -hmm. I discovered some wonderful text on love and the love of God, And in a way, we can share even the idea of love of God as uh, considered by Catholic uh, charity. Because Rumi and uh, Ankaravi, the author, say that the love of God, the love mm -hmm. is boundless. Mm -hmm. And boundless means also without no limit, without uh, interest, 
And this is also charity. So, so it's I overflowing, think, it's, it yeah. spreads itself. And I think that in this concept, we can meet mm. even Muslim and, uh, and Christian. Right, because uh, there's this connection between love and civic life even, love and knowledge, love and service, which is what you're saying. Yeah, that, of course. Yeah. Um, actually, my, the question is how I perceive the love mm-hmm. of God. For me, the love of God is God himself. And, um, so really the, expre- the emphasis on is, that yeah. is, God is love. Yeah. The one who is revealed uh, to the woman and to the man in the world, uh, God loves also to, to show himself and to hidden, uh, to hide himself. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today in Istanbul with Father Alberto Ambrosio. He spent most of his adult life in this place, which had a large Christian population, even into the early 20th century, though most of those Christians were Armenian or Greek Orthodox, also referred to as Eastern Orthodox. As a Dominican friar, Alberto Ambrosio is part of Latin or Western Christianity. And he's a scholar of Sufism, the mystical tradition of Islam with a spiritual homeland in Turkey. What else do you discover um, at this boundary you live at, this spiritual boundary between Islam and, and Christianity? I mean, are there things you learn about Christianity because of your proximity to Islam? Um, or vice versa? Both. Hmm. At least both. Uh, I mean, I found a lot of things. I learned another world. Uh, in a way, another world, another universe, spiritual and human, that I can't um, judge. I cannot judge. It's different, this universe. Eventually, under that, there is a... a a very close human behavior to mine. Mm-hmm. Islam faith is another God, in a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like also to think uh, God as um, the oneness, the, the absolute oneness. Mm-hmm. But I realized that as human beings, we can also be different. And a faith can uh, model another creature, the man and woman, different from my um, experience. So I sense that you, you know, you want, you want to resist saying it's all the same in a way out of reverence for both traditions. Is that right? And mm, I, I really right. understand that. I really appreciate that. Um, so you're saying at one and the same time, uh, you experience the oneness of God and you still want to hold Allah and God as different in right, some way. Of course. Yeah. And those aren't in contradiction. Yeah, in a way, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's why the, the, the contradiction um, makes me uh, to be uh, really alive. But at the same time, it's a little bit, um, I mean, I'm tired. It's uh, making me tired. <laughs> it's exhausting. <laughs> exhausting, yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> but uh, at the same time, it's a kind of virus. Uh, some, uh, one of my professors uh, of uh, theology told me that interreligious dialogue, intercultural um, experience is a, like a virus. And when you took this virus, you can't uh, be... Uh, Without this virus, it's a living virus. There's a, there's a paradox in really profound interreligious encounter. Mm, right. People are as deep or more deeply planted in, the, in their yeah, own tradition right. and can be just appreciative and reverent towards right. the other in a way that's, that they couldn't have imagined before. Right. And you're really living in that yeah, place, right. which sounds and like a contradiction between yeah, identity but, and yeah, reverence, but right. it's not. Yeah, and that's why uh, my worst suffering is uh, the fact that some other brothers or some other Catholics couldn't understand this uh, living contradiction, that, that this contradiction that makes me uh, really alive and uh, it's a wonderful paradox. Yeah. I also think, though, I think that the West in the last 50 years created that contradiction, that you had to be tolerant and that that meant muting a strong identity or you had a strong identity and you weren't tolerant. And I think actually you're 40 years old. I mean, I think the next, the new generations are finding ways to combine those things. And you maybe really represent that living here in Turkey, which is a place historically and in the present that lives with that paradox. Yeah, I think so. In a way, you're uh, completely right. In a way, I'm maybe the, the real product of Western mentality uh, <laughs> that leaves this uh, paradox, this uh, contradiction. But at the same time, I mean, I love this uh, contradiction. I'm closer to the idea of human communion, human uh, meeting, right. than uh, this identity I mean, I know that I'm a Catholic and I want to be a real Catholic. I'm, and even with my background in philosophy and theology, I studied a lot uh, Thomas of Aquinas, that right. is the doctor of uh, Catholic Church. And I'm still very close to this uh, philosophy and theology. But at the same time, I can be open minded to see what God creates hmm. and created and still creates in the world in terms of religions, faith and uh, human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it's an old uh, um, uh, theology. Because God is the creator, mm-hmm. he can also create different okay. mm-hmm. religions. Right. I mean, I'm still wondering and questioning myself. Right. You're kind of touching on this without naming it. Um, the other boundary that you live at here is that the Christians, the tradition that is prominent but also centered here is the Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Yeah, right. At least for uh, in historical terms. Mm-hmm. Right, in historic terms. But, but still the patriarch, the ecumenical yeah, patriarch is, here, is based here. This is for Greeks still Constantinople yeah, and, and the patriarch Bartholomew part of his title is Archbishop of Constantinople right. and New Rome. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm very proud because when I met him uh, every time I met him, uh, he talks to me in Turkish. Uh-huh. So I'm very proud of this because, uh, of course, he, he knows Italian, English, uh, French, and uh, we, co- we could talk in another Western language. Probably is happy that I can talk in Turkish because it's not very common between uh, priests, uh, Catholic priests, 
And I, I tell everyone that he talks to me in, uh, in Turkish. Well, so, say some um, more about why that matters, why, why that's important. Because um, he feels, probably he feels, I mean, it's my interpretation, maybe mm. it's not right, but uh, he feels that um, I'm here and I want to be here. I want to be a part of this country as an old part of this country, as Greek Orthodox, is a, a really uh, old part of this country. He, he wants to see me as uh, the same perspective, to be here, not just a, a foreigner. Of even I, I mean, I even felt this. predating the Ottoman yeah, era, right? So probably, yeah. Truly. Yeah, because we were, yeah, the yes. Dominicans' yes. history here Christians is very long. Yes. Uh, but they didn't talk Turkish. Uh, it's a, rec a very uh, recent uh, story that um, uh, even Catholic priests uh, can talk in Turkish. They didn't learn Turkish for centuries. Right. For centuries. Right. And there were so many reasons that the Eastern and Western Church, or the Orthodox and the Latin churches, diverged. But um, one of them was also that Roman Catholic theology was happening in Latin and Orthodox theology was happening in Greek. So, I mean, even the language. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. So the but fact that fine. you speak, can speak in Turkish now is yeah, interesting. interesting. Yeah, right. Yeah. In a way, I'm very um, reconciliated with the history. I mean, history is a, a part of revelation of God. I mean, uh, history, before being history, was reality, was living life. Because I, I live... I love life, living life, I would say. Uh, I think the history of, as a living life at a time, right. not like storms. And this is your time. Uh, yeah. So I can understand that time and this time because of idea of life. Not as history, uh, dead history. It's not dead history. It was life at the time, not history. And you, as an Italian from the center of Latin Christianity, also, you've seen the other, <laughs> the other side of it. Uh -huh. Also, yeah, yeah, of course. Watch my conversation with Alberto Ambrosio at his monastery in Istanbul at onbeing.org. There you can also listen to this show again and find more images, sounds, and voices from our time in Istanbul. There are photos of Istanbul's iconic Hagia Sophia and of the blue mosque that an Ottoman emperor modeled on its beauty. And there's a late summer night music lesson with a Sufi musician and ethnomusicologist. Coming up, Alberto Ambrosio on the art of living with the religious other. Also, an encounter on a Turkish island with an Orthodox bishop on what he calls his dialogue of life in this Muslim country. I'm Krista Tippett. This program comes to you from APM, American Public Media. American Public Media announces a summertime grilling guide from The Splendid Table, offering recipes and tips to expand your outdoor cooking repertoire, including refreshing beverages and salads. Available this summer at splendidtable.org grill.
I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today in Istanbul, exploring spiritual boundaries on some of the greatest tensions and possibilities of the modern world. The majority Muslim nation we know as Turkey was the birthplace of the Christian Apostle Paul, the land where the Council of Nicaea was held. The Dominican friar Alberto Ambrosio has been telling us about what he learns in his life here. He is steeped in the contemplative tradition of Christianity and in Sufism, the mystical tradition of Islam, which the poet Rumi inspired in this land in the 13th century. So, in America, and I think to some extent in Western Europe, uh, 9-11 was this watershed, right? We live in the post-9-11 world. I began to have uh, um, uh, fear of flights because... Of uh, flying. Yeah, is, I mean, is that true for you too? Because Turkey is, is a different center, right? I mean, it's both European and... Uh, yeah, of course. So is that, a, aside from fear of flying, I mean, is that a milestone for you um, psychologically, or even in terms of how you see religion in the world? Uh, thank God that I began this ad- adventure of uh, discovering another religion, another country, another uh, tradition before 9-11. I mean, I started in 96. So my decision to be more involved and engaged with, uh, um, with studying Islam and to be in, uh, in Turkey began before 9-11. For the moment, the, 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 the best experience I have is um, when I talk about Sufis, for example, to an audience, a Western and Christian audience, and then questions uh, start to come up. I encourage people to read together. I'm dreaming to read together texts of different traditions. Uh, but it's uh, it's still a, a kind of dream because I have to find the the people who want really do that. Uh, but I'm in a way I'm trying to prepare people to do and that. And are you talking about scripture or other texts, mystical texts? Yeah, right. Other texts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah because I one. I think sometimes people start with the Quran and the Bible yeah. and that's not no, no, the place no, no. to I'm, start. Uh, I'm afraid also. It seems obvious this, yeah. and it's not. It's and, actually the worst um, place to start. I'm very happy because I have to, to write, have, and I want um, to write a book of introduction to Islam for a Christian audience, but very simple using poetry and so on. Mm-hmm. And is a Catholic uh, publisher uh, that asked to me to do this. And uh, I brought also a book, the first Italian book on whirling dervishes. Um, the whirling dervishes, yeah. Yeah, yeah the, the, it was the first one, even if a lot of Italians come to Turkey and see and uh, the whirling dervishes uh, dance, and they don't know, they go back and they don't still know anything about uh, Sema. And uh, apparently this book is very uh, well received, mm-hmm. but even by... Um, by the church, I was very, I mean, a little bit proud because uh, the Cardinal uh, Ravasi, who is the Minister of Culture, uh, did a very uh, good book review in one of the most important newspapers in Italy about a book. And he loves also Rumi's poetry. Hmm. That is very interesting. So why is it that these fundamental texts of our theologies and traditions are not the place to start and that poetry and mystical texts are the place to start. Why is that? 
have a lot of answers about this because uh, the texts are like, I don't know, uh, like idols. Are the, are the Bible and the Quran? Yeah, in yeah. a way, uh, I, can't, I can't go uh, very close to them because it's very dangerous. And uh, poetry, mystical poetry, are very closer to us, more close than the they're, they're hospitable I mean, to outsiders also, There is something, it's yeah. like a saint for Catholic, a saint... That's why I can understand why uh, this devotion to the saints in Catholicism, especially in Catholicism, because they are, the saints are human beings and closer than even Christ or uh, God himself. Uh-huh. So we need uh, simple experiences and especially Rumi poetry is very, uh, the images used by uh, Rumi's are very uh, simple, very our experience, people accessible. need people, yeah, yeah, accessible. Mm-hmm. People need this, mm-hmm. and mostly now in this uh, in these days, we need um, simple way to find God and His love and the experience of God. Mm-hmm. Simple ways. So, I think even twenty years ago. Uh, I remember I was involved with a Benedict with some Benedictines ah. who do ecumenism, which is mm, one of wonderful. their things. And there was a big discussion about including this to interreligious dialogue. Mm. And the thing is, whether it was true or not, twenty years ago, it felt like a choice, right? Whether whether any tradition wanted to be interreligiously active. And in 2012, it, it, it doesn't, right? The world is interreligious, it's interconnected. I mean, you've been living this for a long time. And of course, in a place like Turkey, I mean, yeah, you know, it's right. always been a reality. But, um, but it's very frightening for a lot of people. It is new. It's new for human beings to be living with this kind of proximity to religious others in some places, in right, some places. Right. Um, I mean, in the state, the United States, yeah, yeah, much understand. more religiously diverse now than it was 30, 40 years ago, yeah. for all kinds of reasons. Um, so what do you think, um, you know, from this vantage point you have, um, you know, what would you say about, you know, where you have concerns, but most importantly, like, what are your sources of hope as you see this world unfolding, where more and more people are going to be living the way you do, very close to yeah, another tradition, right. uh, also committed to their own? But they don't want. I mean, they don't want to 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 leave this well, diversity. It, it's or they don't want ha- it's or going they... to happen. So so so, what have you learned that might it's be useful? It's a fact, but it's a fact. Yeah. But it can a, be frightening. Yeah. I think that uh, it's an art. It's mm-hmm. an art to leave this um, diversity, and um, we cannot hide that uh, there are also some dangers. Mm-hmm. And how to um, escape by the dangers is to learn the art of living with uh, diversities, uh, living with uh, in this context. And when I say the art to live with, uh, I think that, uh, for example, sometimes even if I like this virus of um, inter- interface and yeah. so on, yeah. I need to, to, to have a break and to look at myself, mm-hmm. to look at my God, mm-hmm. my faith. There is a time for talking, 
for conversation and there's for dialogue and there is a time for silence for um, meditating what I going back lived inward. before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think the 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 real answer to this um, fear that is a real fear mm-hmm. is to learn the art how to live together with diverse religious diversity. Mm-hmm. I'm learning too. I mean, I'm trying to learn. Father Alberto Ambrosio resides at the San Pietro di Galata Monastery in Istanbul, where we spoke. I'm Krista Tippett with On Being, conversation about meaning, religion, ethics, and ideas. Today in Istanbul, exploring spiritual boundaries of the modern world. This is the sound of a Sunday morning liturgy in the chapel of the Halki Monastery on the tiny island of Hebeliada. Our trip to Turkey came about because of an invitation to an environmental conference of His All Holiness Bartholomew I. He's the ecumenical patriarch of 300 million Christians worldwide, including the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches. And this is his monastery. It's a beautiful, tranquil setting. But the many communities on this land have known suffering. Christians recall the massacre of Orthodox priests by Catholic crusaders and the death of over a million Armenians in what some call the first genocide of the 20th century. More recently, there was oppression under a secular Turkish state. The main theological school of the ecumenical patriarch has been closed for 40 years. But the Orthodox Christians here are also experiencing new freedoms under the current government of Turkey, which, with an Islamic prime minister, is more open to religious expression of all kinds. And after that three-hour service in the Halki Monastery, my producer Trent Gillis talked to me about an impromptu meeting he had with a modern leader of this ancient tradition. I think one of the most interesting things for us um, was learning about this, these layers and layers of history, right. especially if you're just looking at the history of Christianity. There's a heaviness to it, don't you think? I mean, all, all those things we learned about, even standing in Hagia Sophia, the, the main church in Istanbul, the things that happened there among Christians. Yeah, it's a, for me, it was a rich mix of history. Um, so I, where I expected to be kind of burdened with some of that history, in other ways, I realized, like, there's a lot of hope yet. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I actually took that when we were sailing out from Istanbul, the mainland of Istanbul mm-hmm. to the island, seeing this gleaming monastery up there. So tell me how you happened to meet Metropolitan Elpidophoros. Um, we had just finished taping uh, photographs, visuals, uh, audio of a three-hour liturgy service. And we were going to have somebody, we were going to try to condense that and make it an explainer. And so I an said... Explainer I, an explainer in... An explainer about how, Orthodox what happens with this Liturgy mass. 101, yeah. Yes. Um, 
with this service and kind of just get, walk people through it because it's so rich with iconography, um, changes of, of garb, the way um, the presiding celebrant comes out and greets the others. And uh, it's this little uh, little chapel, Chapel of the Holy Trinity. And it's a beautiful little place and it has some significant art, art, artistry there. And we're coming out and we we're going to arrange to speak to a seminarian, somebody that was new that could kind of walk us through it. He said the abbot might be offended if he didn't invite him to, to participate. <laughs> right. And we said, well, sure, of course, that, that makes complete sense. We, you know, we'd love to speak to the abbot if he'd take 15 minutes. And then I, I have am, you say... My name is Elfido Foros. Elfido Foros, and I'm a metropolitan of Bursa. Bursa is a city in the south coast of the Marmara Sea, south from Istanbul. Yes, and, and why is that significant within... Uh, the, the well, everybody, every bishop, has, every archbishop has his own diocese. It's not that significant, but it's my diocese. I don't yes, think yes. it's a significant <laughs> diocese, but it's my, my responsibility, my jurisdiction as a bishop. And not only are you the bishop of the diocese, the archdiocese of Bursa, uh -huh. but you're also the abbot of this monastery? Exactly, because uh, uh, in the year 1922, if, you know from the history that there, after the war between Greece and Turkey, there was an exchange of populations between the two countries. And in the framework of this exchange of populations, all Greeks living outside Istanbul had to go to Greece. And vice versa, all Turks living in Greece uh, had to come uh, to Turkey. So uh, we lost uh, the vast majority of our flock in Asia Minor, Pontus, and all this um, historical Christian soil. Uh, after that year, 1922, we keep, of course, the, our dioceses. We elect bishops for these dioceses, but they have no faithful anymore. Things change. Uh, we have now Christians living there, but uh, we have no organized communities because of that historical uh, fact that happened mm -hmm. like uh, 90 years ago. But uh, we have to be flexible and see the future in the new way. These memories cannot be a burden for the future of our faith uh, in this country. So the, the Metropolitan has been in his office about 18 months, yeah. had been when we met yes. him. I thought it was pretty interesting what he told you about how he had spent most of his energy those first 18 months. Right. And buying churches? Yeah. It's such basic fundamentals, you know, there's, if there's no place for his, um, his flock to go, then what's the use? And so he's going back and where we might go back and build something or go back a couple hundred years, he's going back to Byzantine churches. And, and buying them and renovating them. They're just in the countryside. And they're right? just in the countryside in yeah. these f forgotten communities for some Christians. And now you have immigrants from Russia, from Bulgaria coming back, and they need a place to go. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's reinvesting in those communities. And so, you know, again, to get into this, uh, these layers of history... The ecumenical patriarch, and that word uh, ecumenical means something quite distinct and quite um, spacious in that sense. Yeah, I mean, this ecumenical was like a mission statement. 
It's, it's a living uh, reality for us. We are the ecumenical patriarchate here. We are not the Greek patriarchate. So having this cultural uh, richness and background as a ecumenical patriarchate, we have no difficulty uh, to go forward with any new um, given historical situations that God allows to happen. Uh, being member of a church doesn't mean that uh, there is a uniformity. There is no one norm of being Orthodox or of being Muslim or of being Roman Catholic or whatever. Uh, where uh, it is the human element, there are, of course, always some distinctions, differences, different flavors, different tastes of understanding the faith, whatever this faith is. Is it the Muslim faith or is it the Christian faith or is this denomination or the other denomination? For example, here in Turkey, we live our faith as a minority. And this uh, defines the way we live the faith in the way that uh, we understand ourselves and uh, the relation we have with God and in the way we understand the church as institution or as a spiritual reality. When you are a minority, and you are a minority which was uh, up to very recent years persecuted, literally, you see things different. Uh, you do not feel um, an institution, but as a living community. What is the spirit of the ecumenical patriarchy? The spirit is the openness, the openness to the other, whoever this other is. Is this other another Christian, another denomination? Is another religion, another nation, another culture? Whatever it is, we are open, not in a syncretistic way, but open in a way uh, of um, understanding the other and being able to live in peace with the other. But if you, if you want to meet the other and have dialogue with the other, you must be confident and well equipped with your culture, with your theology. If you are not well equipped, then when you meet the other, you are confused. And when you are confused, you, you are afraid. And when you are afraid, you are aggressive. And you go back to conservatism which conservatism is an excuse uh, for the fact that you cannot meet the other because you don't know your tradition well or because you are unsafe. How is that being lived out or played out within the, uh, the monastery itself? Uh, are there, is there dialogue going on or different types of...? Uh, as I told you, I'm appointed the, uh, only 18 months now and I'm trying to first establish a church building to pray in. So it's not my first priority now. I have to first to build my community, and then, of course, building the community, uh, you can have dialogue. Of course, the, there is the dialogue of life. This is most important than the official theological or whatever dialogue we have among religions. What I mean, dialogue of life, is the good relations that I have with my neighbors. 
in the area of the church I already purchased. The good dialogue we have with the mayor of the city, with the governor, with the uh, imams. Uh, the first thing I did when I bought the church was, of course, to, uh, to make a, a door because it was open. There was no door in the church building. It's total ruin. And the first thing I did when I had the keys is to give one key to the mayor. The other, the second key, I gave to the neighbors. And the third key I gave to the previous owner of the church. So everybody feels safe that I'm not uh, a stranger who came in their village and just bought a building and closed it down and went away. This is the dialogue of life I am ha having in my diocese right now. But uh, today we organize here again another dialogue that the Patriarch organized called prominent uh, journalists of the Turkish press. And in one hour there's a meeting here. The Patriarch will meet them. This is another uh, sign, another uh, example of the dialogue of life we have with the people we share our country, our life, our everyday experience. You know, I find that phrase, um, the dialogue of life, yeah. so appealing and, and helpful, useful. And it also is very patient, though, right? Yeah, yeah. As I was listening to him talk about his plan and what he, the work that he's doing, mm -hmm. um, it made me reflect on being an American and some of the trends that are happening right now. Um, there's all different types of slow, slow food movements. Um, um, slow parenting. Slow parenting. Everything's to settle in and kind of reflect on things and not just the easiest thing, but what has been done over time. When I hear somebody uh, like the Metropolitan say that, he's looking back he's to slow change. what he's inheriting. <laughs> yes, it's slow change. The understanding of time in the East, you have already seen it's totally different. This is why uh, we can, uh, for example, give you an appointment at five and come at six and with no hesitation and no problem, because the understanding of time is different in the East. This is one example. The other is uh, how we understand change. We understand changes that uh, happen in depth uh, rather than superficial changes. Changes in depth take longer, need more time, and you need more passions, which these three elements are difficult for the Western civilization to understand. Whether, whether this is good or bad, I cannot uh, say, but this is a reality uh, which we can accept, we have to accept and uh, to understand. In the West, you need things happen quickly, now, immediately. This is not the way things happen here. Uh, for example, this is not the way it happens in Turkey. The way that uh, the present prime minister uh, started changing Turkey of um, modernization and democratization, it was successful because it was not quick. It was in-depth, well-planned, step-by-step, with passions and understanding. There are the, the things that we expect to happen for us, for our community, for the rights of the ecumenical patriarchate, will happen. 
but not that quickly. It will happen step by step. We are uh, planning with the perspective of eternity than with the perspective of the next election politically. This is the spectrum of understanding of time that we have as church. Professor Dr. Elpidephorus Lambriniatis is the Metropolitan of Bursa and Abbot of the Hockey Monastery. You can watch and listen again at onbeing.org and also find more sights and sounds from our trip to Istanbul. Catch up with the other show we produced from there, my conversation with Mustafa Akil on Turkey's emerging model of Islam and democracy. As always, you can like us on our Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash onbeing, and follow us on Twitter, our handle, at beingtweets. This program is produced by Chris Hegel, Nancy Rosenbaum, Susan Leem, and Stephanie Bell. Thanks this week to Omid Safi, Father John Krasavgis, and Paul LeBlanc and the University of Southern New Hampshire, which co-sponsored the Ecumenical Patriarchs Conference on the Environment. Special thanks also to Larry O'Shaughnessy and the O'Shaughnessy Foundation for making this trip possible. Dave McGuire is our senior producer, Trent Gillis is senior editor, and I'm Krista Tippett. Being is supported by the Ford Foundation, working with visionaries on the front lines of social change worldwide at FordFoundation.org, and the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs. On Being is extending its reach throughout America with support from Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private foundation. Next time, Roseanne Cash, the daughter of country icon Johnny Cash, singer and writer, Twitter poet. She shares her thoughts on the source of creativity, the workings of love and grief, and fractals as a way of thinking about the divine. Please join us. This is APM, American Public Media.